Well, good day, guys, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Mitch Stocker. This is Life in the Peloton, and we are here because of our proud partner in the podcast, Rafa. Rafa are all about their kit, and they make the best cycling kit out there. At the end of the day, Rafa is a clothing brand, but it is apparent that their business will never be totally sustainable. That's never stopped them from recognizing the importance of being responsible and questioning what they do to ensure their impacts are as small as they can be. From their product repair kits to incorporating recycling materials, they've always led from the front in terms of sustainability within cycling. And one of their most exciting things to come out of this is their excess collection, which is dropping right now, another collection. A new kind of collection turning excess materials into new products, one outfit at a time. Now guys, Sepkus. He is a household name, one of the best at what he does, the super domestique. A 28-year-old from Durango, Colorado, USA. He turned pro with Lotto Yumbo back in 2018, and he's still riding with them now. In fact, as I record this, he is leading the Vuelta España right now. In the red jersey, how exciting is this? It's so interesting because among other things, this is exactly what we're chatting about today in the podcast. This position he is in. A super domestique helping the best to win races like the Tour de France, the Giro and the Vuelta. He's been right there at the pointy end with his team leader Jonas Vingegaard with today Pagaccio in their wheel at this year's Tour de France. So he knows what it takes to be right up the front. One of my questions to him in this podcast is, Sep, when's your turn? Do you even want this role? And do you believe you have the ability to win a Grand Tour? It's something I'm sure everyone is wondering when you're out there watching it on TV. These final helpers, the super domestiques, the lead out men in the sprints, they're so close themselves, why can't they just win as well? Speaking about Grand Tours, one thing I loved to take with me on the road when I was racing was my AG1 travel packs, and I still do it today when I'm traveling. It's difficult to get all the greens in while you're on a Grand Tour. It's all about refueling the carbohydrates, and the raw greens sometimes just get pushed a little bit to the wayside, and that's why I loved having my AG1 with me when I was racing a Grandy. It's easy to have first thing in the morning when I got up or when I got back to the hotel after a stage to make sure I was getting in all my good vitamins and minerals to top up my overall health. As a pro, it was about performance, the elite stuff, that 1% stuff. And even though I was using AG1 when I was racing, since retiring, I've continued to use it each and every morning. It's that all-in-one that I really like about it. No need to have a bit of this vitamin, some of that, some of this. It's packed full of vitamins and minerals. It's got superfood complexes, probiotics, plant extracts, antioxidants, enzymes, mushroom complexes. It's all in the one place. It's just all there and it's a perfect way for me to start the day. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, AG1 is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go across to drinkag1.com slash life in the Peloton. That's drinkag1.com slash life in the Peloton and grab yourself some. Now we're seeing firsthand at this year's Vuelta España, arguably the best super domestique in the Peloton right now is winning leading a Grand Tour with a week to go. You're going to find out what he, Sepp Kuss, thinks about it all. Is this the plan? Is this where he really wants to be? 
Just before we get to the episode, guys, I want to chat to you quickly about Pillar. Now, Pillar is a sports micronutrition company started here in Australia, developing products that intersect between pharmaceutical intervention and sports supplements for athletes. The easiest way to describe it is electrolytes, carbohydrates. These are the products that get you the finish line. The role of Pillar micronutrition is to help you get to the start line, feeling your best over and over again. Now, I've been using the triple magnesium and I've been using it now for a little over a month and I can really see how much it's changed the game for my sleep. Now, because I don't wear a recovery or a sleep device anymore, I'm really noticing not only how deep I'm sleeping, but the biggest thing is when I wake up in the mornings, how I feel. I'm getting up feeling that much more rested and alert from the get-go. It's been bloody fantastic. But if you do wear a sleep device, which tracks your HRV sleep scores, watch and keep track of your scores and they will tell you it really does work. It's easy to drink and it tastes nice and I've been taking it with my shaker with a little bit of water 30 minutes before bed each night. If you'd like to try Pillar today, head across to pillarperformance.shop and use the code LITP for 15% off your first purchase. For our USA listeners, head across to thefeed.com slash pillar. Guys, get across and get yourself some. This is a no-brainer. Good sleep, good recovery, and it's really simple with the triple magnesium. There's no tricks about it. That's pillarperformance.shop. Now, guys, let's sit back and hear from this year's Vuelta España leader, Sepp Kass. All right, Sepp, Sepp Kuss, welcome to the podcast, mate. Really great to get you on. Mate, I just wanted to say, firstly, where, where are you at the moment? Uh, I'm home in Andorra right now, having a slow morning, drinking some coffee, checking out the views. But uh, yeah, good to be home for uh, for a while now in between in between races and just enjoying last bits of summer. Before we get into it, I actually got it. When you just said that, a question straight off the bat would be, not much time at home anymore these days. I feel like the peloton is changing so much and spending a lot of time at altitude. You're living in Andorra, I guess. You know, you're at altitude. I don't know. Are you at altitude? How high are you? And does that mean you don't have to go to as many camps? No, it's a funny question, actually, because right now I live almost almost 1,500 meters. So I guess technically it, it doesn't really do anything. But I think the unique thing about Andorra, at least, you have so many climbs. You're always going up, going down. Mm. Um you can always train pretty well. So I think in the end that, that more or less evens out the, the effect of, of altitude. But uh, yeah, actually the only the only training camp, altitude training camp I did with the team was three weeks in Tenerife before the Giro. And that mm. kind of carried me through the rest of the <laughs> rest of the season. I was also <laughs> in, in Colombia in um, late January, February, but that was almost more of a vacation, you know, it didn't feel like I was training there. It's nice just to be home and be on your, on your own rhythm. And, and I think certain guys, they, they need that altitude camp in between each race to really buckle down and focus. But for me, it's, it's nice to just be on my own, own schedule. And either way, I like to ride and, and put in mm. the work. So you spoke about 1500 meters, technically not being altitude, anyone from sea level and maybe, you know, the Dutchies who live on, you know, a real, even under sea level at some point, they would find that crazy. 1500, it's actually, you know, I'm feeling it. But you coming from Colorado, yeah. Durango, that's what I want to speak about growing up over there. When you talk about that, what sort of altitude did you grow up at? Durango, it's about 1800 meters at, at city limits. And, and where my parents live now, it's a little bit above 2000, but- 
all the riding there. I mean, all the best mountain biking that's on the Colorado Trail. You're always at least 3,000 up to 4,000 meters just uh, cruising around Nuts. without even you- knowing. Yeah, so you take it for granted, I guess. <laughs> Well, do you reckon that had, like, do you think that has an effect on you, like the Colombians, you know, just coming in? Do you know that? Do you have a higher hematocrit just from growing up at that altitude? Uh, I, I don't know. Hematocrit, if, if I already had something, so, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure it helps, but I think the main thing is just kind of knowing knowing that sensation that you have mm. at altitude. It's because it's, it's a weird feeling. It's at least for me, it's not like I'm gasping for air, but it's just a different feeling in your muscles and, and your sensations are totally, totally different. So I think maybe just being more accustomed to that and you're already mm. in that flow when you end up in, in Europe at a at a high altitude, for example. But yeah, hard to say, but it certainly doesn't hurt. <laughs> no. Well, tell, t- tell me, how did you get across to Europe into, you know, arguably the best team in the world at the moment? Because as you just mentioned then, it's pretty famous for mountain biking over there. And it sounds like you started out with mountain biking. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting into mountain biking at the end of my career and I'm finding it so fun now. I'm like, why do I do all that road stuff all the time? <laughs> yeah. This is much better. So how did you make the crossover? Tell me a little bit about how, how things all started up for you and you know how you made it, your way across to Europe. I mean, in my earlier days, I'd say, in, in Durango, mm. uh, there was just just starting out was a uh, – local local mountain bike club at that time it was maybe maybe five of us and uh the local coach chad cheney would take us out a couple times a week yeah fast forward to now and there's thousands and thousands of kids all all age ability levels but yeah that was the formative years for me on the mountain bike in durango just Mm. just going out with friends exploring having fun doing some local races or what here and there but that was mostly a supplement to all the other sports that I was doing and that, that you can do in Durango. And then it wasn't until I started university in, in Boulder that I discovered more of the, the road scene because right. Durango, it's it's real, yeah, it's, I, I think it's one of the best places in the world to ride a mountain bike. And there's there's roads, but the mountain biking is mm. at a 10 and the road riding is at a, a six or something. So if you have to choose, you say, oh, of course, I'm going to ride my mountain bike because there's <laughs> there's amazing trails. Everybody rides their mountain bike. Uh, you know, it's it's just a no-brainer. So when I moved to Boulder, I was like, holy shit, there's so many so many roads, so many new places to explore. Is the mountain biking crap in Boulder as well, or what's the go there? Yeah, I mean, in the in the city limits, in comparison, probably, yeah, yeah. It's, it has nothing nothing to do with with Durango mm. level mountain. I mean, in the city <laughs> limits, Ellie, just because. I think that there's so much more population and different interests and the hikers, the mm. bikers, the people on horses, nobody gets along and yeah, just more of an <laughs> urban urban area. When I went there, I discovered more of the road. I thought, oh, this is cool because this is what I like to, to do on my mountain bike, just long, long rides, big adventures, get as far out as I could. I was doing a bit of racing with the, the CU team, uh, the mm. collegiate team. That's when... I met Nate Wilson, who is now, I believe he's a coach with EF. And he's like, man, you got the talent for, for road racing. Uh, you know, it's, it's super cool. And, and yeah, if, if you know Nate, he's, he's really motivated and, and he can go into all the details and yeah, yeah get, get you pumped up for, for what, what you're capable of or, you know, the physiology and everything. So he put me in contact with some just amateur teams on the road because at that moment I was also not not jaded with the mountain bike scene but 
it didn't really oh, give me happened? much more motivation. You know, it's because mountain biking now, at least cross country, it's such such an explosive effort. You know, you watch like the mm. the worlds the other week. It's uh, such a short circuit, so explosive, so technical, which which is fun. But what I what I liked about cycling or mm. mountain biking was the the longer efforts, the long climbs, and that's what I was used to in my youth in Colorado. You know, you have these loops of 15k at a ski resort so you're climbing <laughs> for 30 minutes up and then you bomb down and then you do another lap <laughs> 30 minutes up so that for me that was that was mountain bike racing and then the higher level world cup stuff really really short really explosive and um, you know when you're not as competitive in something it's it's harder to mm. draw that motivation from it so that's when i started thinking more about the the road scene and and what would be possible there so yeah nate nate introduced me to some amateur teams i was on a uh, gateway harley davidson and yeah from there quickly uh well not quickly but slowly <laughs> started to figure out how well, to race my bike and yeah i'm glad you mentioned i'm glad you mentioned nate because he's actually been on the podcast and he was exactly what you said when i met him i didn't actually he wasn't my coach but I just sitting in the car with him and, and getting to know him. I was like, I've got to get you on the podcast. He was just so enthusiastic and yep. really spoke at a language I could understand. You know, sometimes talking over your head with all these numbers. And I thought, so he, he's a great, a great episode. A plug to my own podcast. Go back and listen to the episode if you guys haven't heard it. But just to give everyone a bit of an idea of how influential he must have been for you at that point, because he sort of he would m- make the sport seem really attractive. Yeah, for sure. Because you know, you have two kinds of coaches, at least to put it simply. You have the real number, mm. pure physiology, and then you have the ones that are more bike racers and they, they put aside the, but Nate, mm. Nate's kind of a, yeah, a melding of those two. You know, you, you can tell how much he loves the, the, the science of everything, but he can also put it into perspective for you. And, it, and he's a funny guy and you can relate to him and, Mm. Yeah, he just exudes that that passion for for what he does. You know, at that time, that's also what attracted me a bit to to road cycling was the you know it was a bit more tangible than mountain biking. Mm. In the road, it's like okay, you have so many different strategies, different physiology, different mm. uh, you know rider types, certain kinds of climbs, and and it was just for me, it was a bit more nuanced than the world of mountain biking at that time, mm. and. Um, yeah, it was like discovering a, a totally new sport. Well, tell me, how does it come about? Because Nate is working for EF, as you mentioned, and EF is, you know, it's the American team. Um, and it seems like the the natural progression to go into the American team as you move through the ranks and became a talent. I'm sure you're on their radar to then tell me a little bit about that that shift to Europe, especially, but then going to a Dutch team, I think... I actually rode for a Dutch team myself when I first moved to Europe and it was really like a, an awakening, a rude awakening because I really mm-hmm. learned the culture and I'm forever thankful for it. In the time I wasn't, of course, but now I was <laughs> like, you know what, that set, that set me up for my whole career. I think I needed that Band-Aid to be ripped off to know if I love the sport or not, learn the culture, get it forced down my throat, learn the different things around the country outside of racing. And then afterwards I was like, when I went back to an Australian team, I felt comfortable. Like, this is easy. So yeah, yeah. tell me about that, you know, how that all came about and that move to pursue your dream, really. I think it was 2017 uh, when, when Tour of California mm. was still around. I had a few days there that, that were, yeah, decent results and, and there were a lot of <laughs> World Tour teams there. 
Lotto Jumbo at, at the time. I think that, yeah, that year they won the, won the race with George, George Bennett. And yeah, actually after the, after the race at the after party in the, in the hotel bar, I met the, <laughs> one of the directors, Grisha. Yeah. I don't exactly remember what we even <laughs> spoke about, but yeah, I just, I, I just had a good, good feeling from him. And, and I was, yeah, a bit, bit shocked that he approached me in person and, and was interested in, in me and, uh, you know, where I came from shortly after that did the standard, uh, physiology tests and everything had some video calls with, uh, some of the other directors and, and just already had a good, good feeling from the team. I think there was some interest at the time from other, other U S world tour teams, but nothing close to what, what they had shown me. And yeah, you know, when you have that gut feeling or, or a bit more comfortable feeling in something that's such a huge jump. I mean, at that time, I had only done a handful of races in, in Europe. Yeah. So I knew yeah, it's, it's going to be crazy when I go there and I want to be in an environment that, yeah, I, I think that's that's comfortable for me and, and where I can actually really learn the sport. Like you said, these guys, they, you know, culturally, the Dutch, mm. Belgium, they, they live and breathe cycling. What better group of people to learn from than them? And, and they're also really, really direct. You know, in a courteous way, mm. but but it's a really direct. Oh, yeah. So you you know exactly. You know that's in the U.S. culture, whatever. It's you kind of beat around the bush a bit. You're like, oh, what did I do yeah. wrong? But they say, okay, yeah, totally. You, you did this wrong, and, and next time do this better. And uh, yeah, and you think, oh wow, okay. You know, you you don't take it personally just because they tell you straight up. So that was uh, for me at the time in my first year uh, in 2018. I, I had so much to learn, but. I was I was totally open to it because I had no idea what was going on, and I would ask the stupidest <laughs> questions or or do the stupidest things because I had no idea. But then I, I learned so quickly through those mistakes how to how to race my bike in in Europe. Like you said there, now I guess you can <clears throat> sort of think about that was that it was the choice that you wanted to make. But at the time, and maybe it was the only choice. I don't know that exactly. I can't imagine it was. At the time, were you even nervous about that going into, you know, like a, outside your comfort zone? Are you that type of guy to sort of, you know, push yourself? It sounds like you are. And mm-hmm. even going in for that physiology test, that's a really nerve-wracking thing. It's something I didn't have to do, luckily. They might have found out the real truth. And that's the thing. They find out the real, real truth. And I think where the Peloton's going today, ultimately, that's a massive part of signing pro. Luckily for me, it wasn't that, you know. Um Going to those tests and, and tell me about that first time you're with the team and you, you you romanticize it now, but was it a bit of a shock or was it actually very welcoming and, you know, not not too hard? Yeah, actually, before the test, I was, I think it was my, yeah, it was my senior year at, at CU Boulder and I was, I knew the test was coming the next day and I was just doing, doing a normal college thing. You know, I, I think I went to a friend's house and we played beer pong that evening and <laughs> you know, it was, it was never like, but in my mind, I was like, I'm not going to make this any bigger than it needs to be. I'm just going to, oh, brilliant! you know, whatever it's, I'm carbo loading right now. It's a, <laughs> you know, if, if I have what it takes, I, I don't need to be uh, going to bed at, at uh, nine and, and, you know, having everything super dialed in because yeah, at that time I, I had no idea what, uh, really how to train, what to eat that nuts had calories, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it was just, okay, uh, whatever. Uh, I'm going to go on this turbo trainer the next day and ride as hard as I can for as long as I can. And then whatever 
they they see on the screen at the end if it's meant to be it's meant to be but i didn't put any any pressure mm. on it and uh yeah so that that was easy there were no nerves and then yeah eventually it turned it out it turned out it was a good good uh test i thought okay well this is cool that's surprising i i love this because like you're, you're really painting the picture here i met the you know the boss at the bar um, you know, night before the biggest test to sign the, the contract, we had a few beers. This is exactly the way it should be. I don't know anyone yeah. else that really, you know, met, signed their contract, meeting the, the team at a bar, having a beer after the race, and then doing a test after a beer. This is this is the new Peloton. Like, this is unheard of, and I love hearing this because it, it just sort of cements sort of, you know, exactly what you said. If I've got the legs, I've got the legs. I don't need to yeah. overbuild this um, any more than it is. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, I, w- I was lucky at the time. I think when I when I started cycling, even though it wasn't so, so long ago or starting the, the world tour, it wasn't so long ago, but already it's, I'm sure it's changed mm-hmm. so much. But yeah, I see a lot of the, the younger guys now that, that come through the Devo team or, or young signings and they, they already know everything or they've already maximized mm. everything and when i arrived in the world tour i was such a yeah unpolished mm. <laughs> product yeah and, and and that has a lot to do with with where i came from and you know i never had the traditional build up and and there's very few cyclists like that but i mean i'm i'm super mm. grateful looking back to having that different yeah entry into the into the world tour and just doing it because i loved it <laughs> well tell me about now coming into the team and actually i want to talk a little bit about your position now as i see it you know on paper you're written as a super domestique and tell me coming into the team and look I, I draw a lot of similarities to what you do definitely not the climbing side but helping a teammate you know being the last man i call it in the sprint that was a job that i used to do on the road and it was a really important job and a job that i absolutely love to do and i fulfilled it because I realized that was my sort of talent in the peloton and I, I was sort of good at doing that, that kind of effort looking after mm-hmm. someone and I really thrived off that job. And there was a competition between the other lead out men. That's what's something, you know, getting a kudos from, you know, um, Michael Morkov was like, you know, I've done a good job yeah. here, you know. So tell me a little bit about what it's like at the other end. And I mean, on the top of a mountain opposed to at the sprint being a super domestique and we, everyone's seen you out there working for Jonas Vingegaard in the Tour de France. You've also seen you working for Primoz Roglic in the years before I was there in, in a race when you were doing that job as well and seeing it. Tell me what that is like being a super domestique and how you sort of came into that role. Well, it's a multifaceted thing, but, uh, I think to start, I came into that role just with the, the natural qualities. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm mm. a climber. There's, there's not too much else I can do. <laughs> Definitely no, no lead yeah. outs. But, uh, <laughs> the first time I showed that capability was in 2018. I, I won the tour of Utah, but that was, yeah, that was for, for myself. Yeah. And then, sort of and then later, later, a few weeks later, I got the call up for, for the Vuelta. So that was my first grand tour. <laughs> and in the in the first weeks, you know, I was I was still in pretty good shape, and and I was there helping uh, Stephen Kreuzweig, and that's when it was like, oh, okay, this guy can actually do it in Europe too. You know, he can yeah. he can be with the best at that time, ten fifteen guys for a while on on some of the mountain stages. Yeah, later in that race, I was completely dead. I <laughs> I, w- I wasn't really there in the, in the third week, but you know, that was the first glimpse. Of what I had, and then I think in all the all the races that followed, you know, I had 
some really good days and some really bad days. Mm. But on, on those good days, I could always be there with whoever our guy was for that race. And I knew like, okay, I'm, I'm having a good day, but this guy is, is better than me. So I'm going to give everything I have to, to be with him mm. as long as possible or pull whatever if I need to. So over over the months of a season, over the years, you know, all those good days put together, you're not as consistent overall as, as the best guys, but you, you, you can really show yourself on those mm those highlighted days you know you came straight from you know the utah you're riding gc you got to experience what winning was like and of course you step mm-hmm. up the level to the vuelta and i can understand that yeah you slot into a role and it's the vuelta espanol your first grand tour and you're like well this is big you're learning the ropes but clearly your 11 grand tours in now you've mm-hmm. ridden you've had some amazing results is it something that you're really passionate about at the moment or is it something that you're building you know, to go to the next level? Is this like a building phase? Because I think a lot of people are watching out there going, oh, yeah, you know, we've seen it before. You know, these guys, they, they're domestiques for a while and then they try out on their own. Because I guess the, there's a double-edged question here. You've seen what it takes to be a GC man at the very top. Mm-hmm. You've got the best position, not the physical side, but the stress side. So mm-hmm. there comes a point, and just to relate back to myself with the sprinters, maybe I was fast enough, maybe I wasn't, but I also didn't have that killer instinct they had. I knew that. So I knew my place because of that reason. Yeah. I guess what when it comes to that job now, where is it going from here? Is it is it something that you are now settled into because this is really what I'm passionate about? This is my best? Or you know, you've seen and you aspire to be like, I want the pressure. I want to do that stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's good what you mentioned about the, the killer instinct because- you know, I have it to a certain degree. When I have opportunity, I want to win and, and I can get something extra out of myself to try and win or, or to be there even longer for whatever leader. But that instinct now is also pressure and feeding off of pressure. And, and there's in cycling, there's so many different kinds of, if you're a GC rider, at least you have the pressure of, yeah, winning, of, uh, not being in bad position at, at the wrong moment. And then losing everything, not crashing, but also taking risks to be <laughs> in the right place and risking crashing, you know, being confident in yourself, not to have a bad day the next day, being confident in yourself to to make the move when you're suffering, but you know everyone else is suffering even more. All those mm. things in one is is such a, a pressure cooker. And for my role, it's quite simple, actually. I don't have any pressure of losing time on well, a flat stage. <laughs> that's true. That, that is true. You don't have any pressure like that, that day-to-day pressure where you can't lose a moment. But you, you've also got the different pressure where someone is relying on you to put, put them in a position. I, I think maybe I painted that picture that there, the pressure's, there is no pressure, but it's different pressure, isn't it? And that's a pressure, pressure you can handle. Yeah, exactly. Because let's say with, with Jonas, for example, in the tour, I know that there's a certain climb where he needs a really hard pace. Otherwise, it's not at the the tipping point where he can make a difference, where his characteristics can really shine. And I, I know like, okay, I need to be almost at mm. his level today to, to get him to, let's say, 3K to go on this climb at a really solid pace where he can make the difference. Because if it's anything less, then he can't get the most out of himself. Because when, when these... When Jonas and, and Pogacar are at their 
at the point where 1% makes a difference, you really need to, to be there and, and make that, yeah, make the race how you, how your leader wants it. So yeah, those days I know, okay, yeah, I really need to make it to this point. This is my, my finish line or whatever. But for me, that's also motivating because it's not a pressure where you risk letting, letting a whole team down or letting a whole, uh, body of work that's building up to that race down you know if, if you're fighting for mm. the podium or fighting for the win and and you have one really bad day and it, and it all goes south then you can say okay all those months of work all the recons we <laughs> did all the altitude all the the meetings the directors had leading into this race it's not for nothing now but you know you you feel that effort is a bit put out but yeah, for me, it's it's more like on that on that one day, if I can follow through. Tell me, because you're really understanding the role of these guys, and you've worked with some really special guys, and um, Jonas and Primos. They're special characters, exactly what you just said. Then they're handling all that kind of internal pressure, like, and then there's media pressure, their own pressure they're putting on themselves to perform. Mm-hmm. The physical side of things. How am I to know? But let's just say you, there's not much difference between you two. It's it's that mindset. I guess you're in that box seat. What is it like working with these guys? You know, something that I had to figure out as a sprinter and working with the sprinters, they're, they're different characters. And some guys, you know, psychologically needed a bit of pumping up and telling them they look good and, you know, look lean and that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. And that was a psychology. The other ones didn't want to hear anything. They just needed the job done. It's a special relationship and they've got to trust you. Tell me what it's like working with those guys and that relationship, that trust and that knowing sort of confidence they have in you and you have in them. Yeah, for sure. I think Primos, for example, he's, you know, he, he doesn't speak as much during the race. So he, I think he needs a, a group around him that, that he really trusts and, and knows what their, their instincts are because he's, he's so in the zone in the race and, and just kind of feeling out the race every moment feeling out the rivals, feeling out the the flow of what's what's going on with the break ahead and you know what that's gonna imply for the next climb or the next climb. And and he just kind of has that intuitive sense of, of what what he's feeling or what's gonna happen. So you you really need to say, okay, is is he good today? I, I don't know. Cause if I ask him, he's gonna say, Oh, I'm on shit. I am oh, I painted my finger, you know. <laughs> but you know, you, you Deep down, you have to think, okay, what does he feel, you know? And so I, I think he really needs a lot of trust and just knowing that you're going to know mm. what to do like that. And then Jonas is a bit more, okay, let's 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 motivate these guys. Let's push even harder. Come on, uh, you know, keep it like it is. And it's it's more more direct. There's so many different ways, you know. If I was a leader, I would be a lot more like like primos i would i wouldn't say anything the whole race uh if i lost the wheel of a guy i would feel bad and i wouldn't even say in the radio that i lost the wheel. <laughs> you know um yeah i think in the end you you can't overcomplicate it and over over strategize or you know speak too much in the radio everybody needs needs to rely on their instincts and and what they know from themselves not go over them their limits yeah, under, understand the psychology behind each each leader a bit. You know, I guess a question probably people are wondering is, what do you get from these guys? What do you get from these leaders? You know, is it, you know, they, you're doing this work for them and is it, a, is it a transaction, you know? Because for me, it was enough. That was my job within the team. That was enough for me. But how do these leaders go about looking after not just you, but the team, you know, the appreciation for the work that they, you know, you guys put in? Because you put in, 
just as much work as everyone in that team, as much as Jonas, as these guys, to do that job at 100%. Um, mm-hmm. And so I guess what's what's the what's the the appreciation back from these guys when the job is nailed? And, you know, let's talk about this year's Tour de France. The job was nailed, you know. It was just you there left with the two best riders and ultimately you just started drilling it and it was just, you know, that was it. You set it up time and time again. Yeah, I think for me with Jonas and Primoz, you know, or or whatever, wow, there all these guys that that you you work for, you know, they don't need to say it to you over and over again. Oh, thank you so much because you you spend so much time mm. with them, you know how they are as, as people and you know when they're when they're grateful and that that oftentimes goes without saying. For me it's it's knowing what kind of people they are and knowing, okay, like I I really I like this guy. You know, as a as a human being, I'm gonna mm-hmm. give everything for him because not only is he a really good bike racer, but but I get along with him. Yeah, it's it's like uh, doing a favor for your friend, or <laughs> yeah. you know, it's is it's it, not so much of a transactional thing. Is it ever hard working for someone that you don't like? Has that ever happened? You're like, oh god, I've just got to do the job. It's not the same sort of satisfaction, is it? No, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, I, I think on on this team, I'm lucky that it's it's a really close group and and you know not not really any egos and and of course everybody's different from from the you know there's there's so many individuals in cycling so many interesting people but uh yeah for sure if i if i think of some other guys in the peloton that that you could potentially work for i think well okay that's you know maybe not as not as motivating but Mm. then again you you get stuck into what you're doing and Maybe it's the same, maybe it's not. But I, I think for me, it's it, I really feed off that interpersonal connection and just the human level feeling I get from from the the leaders. Mate, tell me, you're riding up the front of the race in the Tour de France, and this year's Tour de France crowds were just outrageous. And even the Vuelta, sometimes you're going up those steep climbs. Are you still sometimes a bit of a fan? You know, still being quite new, um, young in the sport, mm-hmm. or you know, you just can't afford to be. Or is it like, what is it like? Give people an idea of what it must be like. You're riding up the climb there. You got Jonas in your wheel. You got Pochacar sort of maybe waiting to attack. The crowd's going crazy. Are you sometimes just going, this is nuts up here, or you just like I just so focused on what you're doing yeah it's definitely i think every year it's it seems like more and more crowds and and different people especially in the tour you have such a mix of of people coming from all over people that just stumble upon the race and like oh okay i want to be on tv Mm. and (laughs) show my ass on (laughs) on television (laughs) but uh yeah it's uh it's pretty chaotic i'm a guy a rider that needs a bit more tranquility you know when i'm training Mm. i don't I don't listen to music or anything, just kind of in the zone focused. But with that said, when it's the last few K of Alpe d'Huez, whatever, and then there are thousands of people, so many smells and noises. <laughs> when, you, when you're really in the zone and, and you're really in the race, you, you don't really hear any of that. You, you just kind of tunnel vision. Yeah, that's a, a special, special moment for sure. And and of course, when you're out of the race and you're just riding through, then, then you... you almost notice yeah. everything a bit more but yeah when i can really get into that that zone and that concentration that's that's when i can get a lot out of myself i think and then the 
all the extra stuff on going on the side of the road doesn't doesn't phase me as much. You can feed off of it as well. It's it's motivating. It's, it's so funny is that people ask me the same thing. I can only compare myself to a small little climb in the Tour of Flanders or something like that. And you, you look at it afterwards, you're like, holy hell, the crowds were so big yeah. then. But it's only until I got dropped. You know, that I would notice or if I was in a breakaway, maybe then I could feel it. And because you, you, you're sort of yeah. absorbing it a bit then. But in the moment of putting someone in the position or trying to hang on on a climb in the bunch, I didn't notice it. And it seems so weird for people. Like, how can you not notice literally four deep on each side? But you just it is tunnel vision, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's really, yeah, like you said, it, when you're really in the zone, then <laughs> then it doesn't matter. I think in the in the tour this year, we we had one finish on the Puigdedome, and in the last mm. 4K, there was no no public allowed because it's a natural area, whatever you call it, and and it was so <laughs> straight because you go from like we climbed out of the city of Clermont Ferrand, and there's so many people, so many people, and then all of a sudden, just nothing. And it was so weird because you could hear your own breathing. You could hear the breathing of the guy behind you and the, and the guy behind him. And you're like, <laughs> well, I've never, I've never had this before. You know, I've never heard Jonas breathe. I've never heard Pogacar breathe. What it sounds like when they're actually breathing uh, under, oh, under yeah. effort, you know? Because usually there's so much noise. You have the helicopter and everything. And, and here, yeah, you could hear a fly in the, in the air. It was so quiet. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a contrast for sure. Yeah, it would have been so weird because I remember when they started showing the like the football games or rugby games or whatever in, in lockdown, COVID, and they they went, this is weird. We've got to put a fake crowd here because it just sounds yeah. so weird. You could hear the – that's the sort of feeling yeah. it must have been like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was really – yeah, also it reminded me of the COVID year in 2020 on most of the climbs, hardly any people, and I wouldn't say it was – better or worse you know it, it, it depends on the moment when you want the crowds mm. or not but uh yeah it's just uh just a different feeling because there's a point in in these big races or in a grand tour where you're just so tired of all the stimulation you know you have the noise in the race and then you you finish the race and then there's all these fans wanting a bottle or autograph at pictures and then you get on the bus and then you just have this big like oh, decompression because it's just all day mm. so much stimulation. Yeah, that's that's when you appreciate the the quieter moment. Well, tell me, let's talk about the American wave coming through at the moment because you guys are going nuts. You know, you got Nielsen who is up there as well. Brendan McNulty, he's doing a lot of things. Quinn Simmons, Matteo Jorgensen. There's there's a whole bunch of you. I can't go through them all. You guys are all coming through at the moment. I sort of grew up watching Lance. I was actually a Jan Ulrich fan myself, so I love that rivalry. But then mm-hmm. I, when I turned pro myself, there was a little bit of a hiatus of the dominance of the US sort of pros. You know, we had Tyler Ferrar in the sprints. You know, TJ was flying the flag there for a while. Of course, we had Ian Boswell as well and Talansky. I'm sure I'm missing some others. But I sort of felt like it was a little bit of a hiatus. But now it's come back so strong, yourself included. Is there any anything you can sort of put it down to and why, you know, you guys are sort of collectively come in sort of at the same time? Was that all that racing together or there needed to be a time after that Lance Armstrong sort of fog after, you know, the positive sort of debacle? For me, it's hard to say because I was, as a U23, let's say, I was always, I was still pretty far removed from, let's say, the, the development pipeline. So I think the only 
I did in Europe, my last year U23 with uh, with the national team. Yeah, that was actually the first time I raced with with any of the other US guys that are yeah. that are in oh, the peloton right. now. So I was uh yeah, total new guy <laughs> on the scene then and and it's it's hard for me to speak for the development opportunities then or or how that they mm. potentially developed these guys. I mean, I can for sure for you know, guys like Nielsen and Mateo, they, they had a lot of racing in that, uh, you know, U.S. national team program. And they, they really learned how to race in Europe. And it, it also shows with the kind of riders they are. They, they're so versatile. They can ride the cobbles. Mm. They can ride mountain stages, uh, one-week stage races, time trial. And I think that's a, a beautiful thing to see because for the, the viewer, that's a really exciting rider to watch these, mm. these really versatile riders and i'm sure for them it, it's a product of of getting that exposure to uh, racing in europe whereas for me i i did two races <laughs> in europe <laughs> as u23 and then i went to the world tour and then figured it out from there and <laughs> and i always think oh man it would be it would have been so cool if i actually grew up a bit in road racing and knew you know, just the simple things, writing some criteriums and knowing, you know, how the flow that, you know, you see guys like, like Wout or Christophe mm. Laporte, they, they just float through the Peloton because they know exactly what's, you know, where it's moving and where the openings are going to be. And a guy like me, I'm like, okay, how do I get to the front now? It's uh, on the <laughs> left. If I go outside here, then I'm going to get boxed. Okay. It's not even worth it. I'll just stay in the back. You know, it, for, for some guys, it's just, yeah, <laughs> just second, second nature which is so valuable in road racing. On the same note, you come in with freshness, mental freshness. Yep. You know, you came into the sport, you know, from mountain biking, you know, which is from the, the scene that I know now, is it's so fun and inclusive. Mm-hmm. And you come into this road season, which can be a bit draining mentally. That yep. I, I get the feeling you're fresh. You're still sort of, I wouldn't say discovering it, but, you know, you're, you're not tired out from it. No, it's a good point. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm still learning now, but... When I first came on, it was, like I said earlier, it was so exciting because there were so many new things and things that I never even thought about. And and it's just like you open one door and then it opens up five more doors about, okay, but then if <laughs> if uh, if this situation happens, then then X, Y, Z can also happen. And then it's it's just, you know, you, you learn so much. I went in with, with such a open open view to everything that, yeah, everything was, was so motivating and, and exciting, but... Uh, yeah, I think I think with the the current generation, you know, everybody has kind of a different background that they come from, and they, and they bring something new to the table. And I think that's where where you can get the the biggest talents now in cycling. People that come from some different backgrounds, some different racing uh, pipelines, and yeah, then then you come up with a diverse group of riders that I think we have now in the, in the U.S. You can see now when we talk about Jumbo Visma and my sort of skepticism, like, oh, well, you know, were you feeling nervous about going there? But you were just a bit open-minded. You didn't really know what I was talking about when you went across these different dynamics. Same as me. I was like, great, Dutch team, I'll take anything yeah. at this point. So, you know, it's only afterwards you sort of learn like, oh, this is going to be a hard sort of route. And maybe these younger, these other guys who had experienced Europe a bit favoured more the US sort of s- scenario, the, the you know, the EF or, you know, I can't say for Matteo, he went down that route, but it's it's interesting that you come in willing to sort of take anything on and you sort of absorb more in a way. You haven't been sort of scarred or something like that beforehand. You're just sort of ready to take on everything. And it's 
it's really interesting. You see that, I didn't know this story, but you see the way that you are in the peloton and very willing to sort of absorb and, and take on that role and just sort of, it's exciting to watch actually and to, to understand where that's come from. What do you think the sort of roll-on effect may be? And it, you may or may not know this, you know, back in the US and the guys, what are they doing? You, you mentioned that there's a lot more people riding up in Durango. Do you think it's sort of in a, in a really good spot at the moment, the US cycling? You know, we lost Tour of California. I did love that race. It was so fun. Yeah. Um, and we've seen, the, we've seen the development of this new crit series. Yeah, I don't know. Do you have any sort of light on what's sort of happening back in the US? And we've got some, you know, good talent coming through off the back of what you guys are doing? Yeah, I think it goes both ways because from my perspective in the US, there's there's a lot more interest in, in cycling in general. You know, some people I know from university that I would never have pictured riding a bike, you know, they're like, oh, I, I got the, the team jersey. <laughs> I'm here on my dad's old bike cruising around. And <laughs> I'm like, well, I never, That's awesome. never would have yeah. thought you would ride it. Yeah, I'm watching the tours go like... <laughs> And, uh, and that, that's cool. So that's, I think overall it's, it's on the rise and it's, it's also more of a, let's say in style sport, you know, you get the cool kid and then, you know, it's, it's looking good in that regard. Um, but in the U S I think racing wise, it's hard to see these, these big races that we had in like California, Utah, Colorado coming back, because when you compare those to a tour or a, a gravel race that has thousands mm. of participants and and you can get so many different people so many different markets behind a race that's a bit more i don't know inclusive then it then yep. it's different but i think if if you if you want to bring the fact that racing in the US you you really need to make something that's logistically more feasible something that's more attractive to the the general fan than uh, a stage race that's crossing you know, so many distance, you know, just have something really um, concentrated in a certain area, you know, a variety of one day races or something. Well, which is what we've seen from this crit series, you know, and I I really do hope it really does, you know, take off because it seems like it's the right move for the US. And I think, it, you know, they, the model of that can follow. Not that we came here to talk about the future of, you know, US (laughs) racing and the politics of that, but I just thought it was quite interesting. And, And just feeling, look, I felt it myself, each year I used to come back to Australia in the summer and I would just see, like you said, different friends or, you know, people that I knew from school sort of shone me in the day. What are you doing that cycling thing yeah, for? Yeah. You know, what's that? And then things drastically changed in Australia when Cadell Evans won the Tour de France and, you know, everyone and sort of came out of the woodwork and became these, you know, these avid cyclists. And it was, at the time, pissed me off. But in the long run, I was so happy to see people riding a bike. And it sounds like the same sort of effect is happening, especially with yourself being seen in the biggest race of the year. You know, that's going to get played in the US and you're on the front of the of the peloton and the final moments on this hill. And, you know, I think it's got to have a massive effect back in your own town, but also around the people who know you getting back in, getting into the sport. And Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, when, at least for me, when I'm in the tour, for example, you're living in such a bubble and you're just kind of focused on, on each day and, and, you know, the, the process of each stage and you, you lose sight of what it means on a global level or, or what people are seeing back home and that people are actually inspired by, by what you're doing. Cause when mm-hmm. I think I'm just like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm doing, I like to ride my bike. I like to race my bike and I just want to do my best. I guess that's inspiring, but yeah, for, for a lot of people, that's, that's really inspiring. And, um, and, and that's nice to see, you know, when, when you see kids, uh, dressed up in, in the Jersey and everything and 
sometimes for me, that's hard to relate to because I never had like cycling heroes, really. I, I just like yeah. to watch the races and one race, I would like this guy, another race, that guy. And, and for me, my heroes were more uh, the members of the community in Durango, the pros that would take time to ride with us. Yeah, guys that I, yeah, we were lucky enough in Durango to, to know on a on a personal level. So those were my, my heroes. So it, it's hard for me to say, oh, wow, that guy on TV uh is is my hero but yeah i i also understand it and and that's that's really cool how does it feel doing that you know coming back and understanding what you just said trying to be you know that guy that you can go up and talk to and not trying to be i know you would never be this too big to talk to anyone but there comes a point where you can't spend time with everyone how are you managing that yeah it's it's hard because yeah i'm i'm just a, a cyclist i'm just a person like like everybody else but yeah there, there's a point where you appreciate everybody on, on a human level, but you can't make everybody happy, you know, and I just, just want to be myself and, and treat everybody with respect, but also <laughs> there, there are boundaries and, 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 uh, yeah. sometimes you, you do feel a bit like, uh, a, a circus animal or something and everyone's taking pictures of the team while you're eating dinner, you know, and some, sometimes there, there's a line. So, but you know, if I see people on the road, whatever, and find a, have a chat with everybody, but. Um, no, I'm, I'm definitely not not envious of of the the big stars like Wild and Jonas. You know, they, they're like God <laughs> to people, and that's uh, that's that's an interesting uh, role to take on in, in society when you walk around and everybody uh, takes their cameras out. And yeah. I'm sure you, I'm sure you're God back in Durango now <laughs> these days. Um, I want to talk about the future. And you mentioned mountain bike a hell of a lot. We've both been speaking about it. Leadville, is that on the cards, mate? Do you want to go back and conquer <laughs> Leadville? What, what does the future look like for you? Where do you want to go? We spoke about, you know, what I sort of alluded to. Maybe you want to be a GC man. I don't know. What does sort of the the the, the current sort of future look like, the next few years and the long term? Do you want to get back into mountain biking? Yeah, I, I think in the next few years, you know, I, I'm i really comfortable in, in this role I have. And I I've also had a year or two of of kind of trying to be that gc guy or, or go for a result in a week-long race or a grand tour and then in the end I've, I've realized okay that's that's a lot of extra stuff that i don't necessarily need and that's not mm. cycling for me uh or or racing you know of course i i want to win i want to win stages and grand tours and everything but i know that's also going to be a result of, of the opportunities or just you know, luck sometimes, uh, if, if you have a stage and somehow you end up in the break and then, you know, this, this situation ends up, then, luck. then it's meant to and, be. And you drop, <laughs> you drop Valverde and he can't catch yeah, you. Yeah. It is pretty luck, luck lucky luck. that one. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, I know you what know, you mean though. But just staying on that line, because I realized for myself when in the, in the year when I, yeah, 21, when I started to try for, for GC, because that was off of 2020 when I had some some stages in the mountains. Everyone's like, oh, if he can do this in a grand tour, hmm. oh, he's going to be podium, whatever. And and I still get a lot of comments like that, like, oh, you you were with the, the best two guys, three guys. If you had a team behind you, you could you could win. Yeah, it's, it's not so simple. Uh, mm, <laughs> but yeah, when, when I it's when different. I first had those those sensations or that that feedback from from the outside, like, oh, you could really be a, a, a GC rider, then of course, you want to try it because that's that's the pinnacle of of uh, yeah, of cycling for, for a lot of people. And, and I realized when I 
did try for that. There was just so much going on that I didn't need it. training on the time trial bike every day, mm. uh, stress, trying to be in the front, not to, you know, and, and that just took away from what I was mm. good at and what I liked. Uh, yeah. and, and in the end, it, it didn't make me a better rider. It made me worse at what I was good at and made me question all the other little things that didn't matter. So mm. yeah, for now it's, it's better. I think from a, from a fun standpoint and, and from, a just getting the most out of myself standpoint to just stay in this line uh, with, with helping the best riders in the world. And then, and I know when the time comes, there's always an opportunity and I want to seize it with, with both hands, but yeah, it's, it's always hard to see year after year, what, what progression I would want to make. And I'm not one for setting a result goal or anything. You know, I just want to be the best I can be every year. And Mm. And I know if as a product of that, then I can do some, some beautiful things, let's say. Um, and yeah, I think after, after the road career, it's, it's hard to imagine <laughs> not, not riding. Um, but yeah, for sure. I would love to do some, some mountain biking, you know, in, in, uh, in Europe, there's a lot of cool, like marathon races, some, some stage races on the mountain bike, kind of similar style to what, what I grew up with in, in Colorado mountain bike racing, you know, these longer races, more climbing. Yeah. Similar to a road race. And then, yeah, Leadville, <laughs> you never know. I, I saw a couple of days ago, I think Lachlan put up a post about Leadville and he said that, you know, cause Keegan Swenson is super dominant, just yeah, rides away from everybody. Yeah, yeah. And he said, Oh, the, the only guy I could maybe see staying with uh, Keegan would be Sep. And I thought, well, that's, that's also tough, you know, because each discipline now, even gravel is, is also so specific. There's, there's a yeah. few guys in the world that, you know, Pitcock, Vanderpool, they can jump in a mountain bike race and win it after riding a grand tour. But yeah, it's, it's really hard to imagine going from, yeah, I guess road fitness is similar to what you need in Leadville, but yeah, it's, it's also so specific and you never know until you, until you get there, what it's going to be like, but yeah, it'd be fun for the challenge, but also I guess it's not a real mountain bike, mountain bike race. <laughs> so well, so no, you, you it, have it, to go there and, and you just got to say, okay, this is going to be a pure supper fest. There's not going to be too much <laughs> single track to break things up. It's just going to be, uh, you know, and then, and then what is winning, you know, is winning, uh, winning the race or is it beating a record or, yeah, so maybe it's never good yeah, enough. It's a, <laughs> it's a whole other kettle of fish. I just thought it'd be interesting to note or hear it here first if you were going to go back. But yeah. I think you really brought up a great point there is that it's managing lifestyle and what, you know, this is a long game if you want to be a pro in Europe. And sure, you can just flame on and, you know, start burning with, you know, with petrol if you want to just try and achieve something and, and do everything. And next thing you know, you're burnt out. You don't love the sport anymore. And I think you brought yeah. up a really good point for young riders starting the sport, even if before they're professional. If you want to play the long game, you got to make sure you keep enjoying yourself yeah. um, and find out things that'll make you happy. And yeah, like you said, you, you touched on maybe trying to do something because of outside pressure, but actually you were really honest with yourself and said, is this where I want to go? This is not making me love the sport anymore. And I, I really loved hearing that because I think a lot of people are too quickly to just do what everyone else thinks they should do and not just be, you know, true and honest to themselves. Mate, it was absolutely awesome to have you on the pod. I know you've probably got to go and do some kind of recovery ride today. You've given me some time in the morning in a very busy period. So, Sep, great to chat to you, mate. Thank you very much for being on. Mitch, likewise. It was really fun, man. Great chatting with you. 
Well, quite an interesting one. I think it was really interesting to unpack not only his role, where he wants to go, but what is happening in the sport of USA cycling, his impact on that. I think he's probably underestimating how much impact he's really having on those young guys coming through at the moment, young guys and girls, the young crew, you know, the next wave or the next generation. It's really interesting because that's sort of what happened to him, himself in his own town, Durango. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope you guys are enjoying watching the Vuelta España. And I hope by the time you listen to this, the Vuelta is over with the red jersey on Sepp's shoulders. How awesome would that be? Well, don't worry anyway. Catch up with us next week because that is going to be the race communique and we are going to unpack what happened in the Vuelta among many other races and the trends and the sort of rumors what are going on in the peloton. That'll be with Luke Durbridge and Tom Southam next week on the race communique. A big thanks goes out to the producer of this episode from Red Bricks Media, the team behind Life in the Peloton, Megan Spurlo, and of course, you guys for listening. So until next week, guys, cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.